everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by his grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's word together each week. Please turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1, starting in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives liberally to all and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's some more verses we're going to get into in a minute here, but I always gritted my teeth when I would read that. Even, Even in my most spiritual of times, I still read that verse and I cringe or I tighten up or my throat closes off or my lungs become a little bit seized because James says count it all joy when you face diverse trials. Diverse means creative, means a variety of things. So he's not saying when you go through a trial. He's not saying if you go through a couple, but when God gets creative and starts throwing whatever he can at you and sends you through a trial, he says count it all joy. And let's be clear. He is talking about God being the one that gives you the trial. We're going to go ahead and get to the devil here in a minute and what part he plays in this. Because a lot of times when we go through something that's very difficult, we have a tendency to err one way or the other. We look at Satan and we start blaming him and rebuking him. And we should if he's the one showing up at the doorstep. But sometimes it's God the one doing that to you. And you're rebuking the wrong thing. You can't rebuke the God who's supposed to support the rebuke when he's the one giving you the trial. Then other times, we look at the trial and we say, all right, God, I'm ready to walk through this. And he's not the one doing it at all. He's only given permission to Satan to go ahead and start bringing temptation against you. And so we get so confused back and forth in this. But he starts it off with this point where he says, count it joy. Now, if you've ever had a bad day, how many of you have smiled? Not sarcastically. Not ironically. Not where you're so overwhelmed with the calamity of the day that your body goes into a shock where you just smile and hang your head. Have you ever met people like that, that they get such awful and grave news that their first reaction is to smile? It's not that they're happy about it. It's not that they're excited about it. It is that their body has gone into a mental and emotional shock that the only thing that their body can think to do is smile because it's trying to respond. And that just happens to be what comes out. I have people who look at me. Why are you happy about this? Isn't this rough? not happy about it. I just don't know what to do. This is my default mode. Smiling is really easy for me, so I guess I'll smile and I'll figure out how I really feel about this later. Smiling is not necessarily joy, nor does he say when you go through hard times, smile about it. I get very frustrated when we do that as Christians because one of the most frustrating and infuriating things for the world 
when they interact with a Christian who they see going through difficult times, they know everything's bad. Not everything's good. It's very clear you're not having a good time at home. It's very clear that the marriage isn't going well. It's very clear relationships aren't going well or the interaction with the children or the job's not going well or the money's not going well or the anxiety or any type of mental disorder's not going well or you're in the hospital and things aren't going well and they come up and talk to you and they ask how you're doing and you just smile at them and say, I'm so happy. No, you're not. Now, I'm not saying you won't be happy, but at the beginning of the outset, when we start dealing with these things, we have a tendency to put on a show. I'm just so happy that God's in control. I'm just so, listen, there's nothing wrong with being honest about the situation, looking at it and saying, I'm in pain. I'm in sorrow. I'm in agony about this. In fact, even Jesus encourages agony and sorrow and grieving. How do I know this? Because he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So there is a place as a Christian when you are in pain, when you are going through trials to be okay, to fall apart and start weeping or gritting your teeth or feeling frustrated or mourning and grieving. And Jesus says, blessed are you when you do that. So you put that together with James when he says, count it all joy. You can no longer look at your difficulties in life and just say, well, I'm just going to be happy as I go through this. We have let some of the worst theology the world has to offer creep its way into the church. Have you ever heard people say you just got to think positive about everything? If you think positive, you'll get positive. If you think good thoughts, then good things will happen. If you just keep a positive attitude and smile through life, then everything is going to fix itself. And all the while, all I can think of is, well, what about Job? He seemed pretty positive as he was sacrificing to God, as he was worshiping him and all the things he had. And then all of a sudden, his entire family is killed except for his wife. All of a sudden, all of his wealth is gone except for the place that he sits in with his tattered raggedy clothes. I wonder if he was thinking positively enough to get good from God. I wonder if Joseph when he was in prison after he had been wrongfully accused of rape had a positive attitude about what had happened. I wonder if as he looked around the prison if men who were going to be sentenced to death he was not in a casual five star federal prison where he got to have leave every day and go play golf with the guards. No he was in a prison for people who were sentenced to death because the crime he was accused of was raping the captain of Pharaoh's guard's wife. You don't get off with just a slap on the wrist when you mess with someone's wife who is in that high of a... I wonder if he had a positive attitude. I wonder if Jesus felt like smiling when he was hanging up on the cross and he just looked at God with a big old smile on his face and said, Daddy, I'm so happy that you're not paying attention to me anymore. Father, I'm so glad that you have forsaken me. Father, they're casting lots for my clothes and I'm sitting here naked and battered and bruised with all of my organs spilling out. I wonder if as the soldier pierced him in the side. Jesus just put on a smile and said, I'm so happy. And we deceive ourselves with this attitude, well, I'll just smile about the pain I'm going through. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing immoral. There's nothing unbiblical. There's nothing non-Christian. There's nothing doubtful. There is nothing unfaithful about being honest about the pain that exists in life. In fact, there is more grace when we come to the throne of God and say, God, here's what I'm going through. God, here is the pain I'm in. Here is the difficulty I'm in. Here's what I need you for. That's why you see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane who's getting ready to go and die on the cross. And the first thing he says in his prayer that we are told by the gospel writers is he looks at God the Father and says, I don't want to do this. Pick another route, God. 
I know this is what I left my throne for. I know that since eternity has begun that I have been getting ready to do this. I know that since the fall of the Garden of Eden that I had planned to come down here, that I planned to be beaten, that I planned to be stripped, that I planned to have a crown of thorns, that I planned to be accused, that I planned to set aside my glory, that I planned to set aside some of the power of my deity, not setting aside his deity, but the power that he possessed as deity. I know that I've been planning to do this since eternity has laid its foundations, but God Dad, pick something else. And then he says, but I'll still go through. You want to know why he had grace to go to the cross? Because when he went through his relationship with daddy, he said, I don't want to do it. Let me be clear. I'm not trying to be defiant, Father. I'm not trying to be rebellious. I'm just letting you know, I don't want to do this. However, this is the only way. Let's go through with it. The idea of having joy in your darkest moments is not to lie to yourself. The idea of having joy in your most painful points of life is not to pretend and live in a world of fantasy that you escape to. The idea of having joy when it feels as though life has crippled you, is not to just distract yourself with everything around you so that you don't have to face it and confront it so that it just feels as though you have deadened the emotions. The idea of joy is to look at God and say, God, I'm in pain, but you still love me. God, I can't make it through this, but you still love me. God, I don't have the strength to do what you're asking me to do, but you still love me. God, I don't think I have the fortitude. I don't think I have the intellect. I don't think I have the resources. I don't think I have the relationship. In fact, God, I am confident I have none of the things necessary to survive this crippling blow that life has dealt me. But because you love me, I am well aware that I will make it through this. I don't know how I'll make it through this. I don't know what I'm going to look like when I make it through this. But because you still love me, I know that I will survive through this by your grace. Joy is not a feeling of excitement. Joy is not a feeling of happiness. Joy is a foundational belief that even though life has struck me with pain, that dad is still standing next to me, with me in the midst of it. Joy is the same thing that when my son comes running into my room at night because he heard a truck that was really, really loud and he thought it was thunder and he comes running into my room and says dad I'm scared I don't know what to do I'm afraid of thunder can thunder hurt anybody it's just sound now maybe if you were standing right next to it when it occurred first of all there's a lightning bolt I think you'd have a much bigger problem with that but if you happen to be right at the point of where lightning strikes and it doesn't strike you and you hear the sonic boom the worst it will do to you is vibrate your body maybe blow an eardrum for some of you that's not a problem the eardrums already gone ask my wife I don't hear very well already so I have no issues with that but he comes running into the room dad I'm scared Leo has started figuring that out now. I don't know if Leo's actually scared or if he just wants me to hold him. I don't know why he's got to pretend to be scared for me to hold him. Maybe it's because sometimes he's whining so much and I'm just like, go away. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to hold you. You're driving me nuts. But sometimes he just comes running up to me. Nothing's even happened. And he goes, Dada, scared. And now I have to pick him up because I can't look at my child who's scared and deny that. He could have been in a fight with me, an all-out, drag-out temper tantrum. And if he comes running up to me and says, Dad, I'm scared, I'll forget about the tantrum. And I'll pick him up and scoop him up in my arms. And I'll hold him there, and I'll let him know it's okay. Now listen, does me holding my sons change the thunder? Does me holding my sons change whatever that loud vehicle was that they mistook for thunder? 
Does it change any of the scenario around them? No, it does not. Does it take away their fear? No, it does not. Not always. There are times where the fear is so great that they can't do anything, but they're still in my arms. There is time where the fear is so great that they feel as though they can't get over it, but they still came running to dad saying, dad, I can't get over the fear, but if you'll hold me, I will survive through the fear. Joy is when you understand who to run to who can hold you while you're going through something so painful. Because you know he loves you. Peace is when you know that God's in control. That's not joy. Peace is when you understand he's in control. Joy is when you understand he loves you. Preacher, I have a hard time getting joy. I have a hard time clinging to joy. It's difficult for me to remember that God loves me when I'm in the midst of this pain. Why do you think he said the testing of your faith. God knows your joy isn't quite there yet. And God knows that there's a lot of harder things in life at some point that will come your way. Not because he's throwing it your way, just in general, life is hard. It doesn't take long to be alive in this world to realize life is hard. And life, for some reason, gets progressively harder as we get closer and closer to going home. God is not being cruel or bitter or a crotchety old man on his throne just trying to put me through things so that I feel as though he's frustrated with me or mad at me or beating me down. No, what he's doing is he's looking at an insufficiency in my life. He says, if you're going to have joy, you're going to need faith. But the only way that I can temper faith, the only way that I can craft faith is if I put you in scenarios that are difficult that you've never been before that you don't know what to do. Where you don't have the resources, where you don't have the understanding, where you don't have the ability to make it through that on your own, where I leave you with the only option left is to run to God. The reason God cuts everything off and puts us in diverse trials and all of these creative temptations that personally I wish he wouldn't do. I'd rather have less faith and God just let me have a life that I skate through and I get to heaven and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, and that will be fantastic. But he's loved me too much to leave me as broken as I am right now. So he says, I'm going to put you through things so that your faith gets tempered. So that your faith becomes catalyzed. I love the words that God likes to use because he doesn't use weak words. If you go back and read, we have a tendency to kind of weaken the Bible. And I don't think we mean to do that. I don't think we intend to do it. It's just very difficult when you take words from an ancient Greek or an ancient Aramaic and then you throw them against an English language that is very limited in its descriptors. But many times when God is talking about testing things, it's really the word to temper something. Now that's a blacksmith term. If you want to temper steel, you're strengthening the steel. Now how do you strengthen steel? Well, first thing you do is you throw it into a fire. Isn't God so kind to us? I hate the, I, we go our whole, God, why does it hurt so bad? Because I just threw you in a fire. Why'd you throw me in a fire? Because I got to soften you up because you're too hard. You want to do things your own way. So I got to throw you in a fire. God, isn't there a different way to, have you ever tried to bend steel? Like actual steel. I remember going up to seeing those little steel rods as a child because I lived in a community where I was one of the first houses when I lived in Cincinnati and they'd be building other houses and like an ornery little brat, I'd run to where those new houses were being built and all of it was cleared away and they had all that metal and all that steel and all that rebar and I would go and I'd grab those tiny little ones and I'd start to bend them and I'd think to myself, I am the Hulk. I am powerful. I am unstoppable. And then I'd go and grab the rebar, and I'd go to bend it as well, and I'd think to myself, I am incredibly weak. I couldn't even get it to come with me, uh, to, to bend. Now, here's the thing. 
if you got a big stick, it's easier to bend it. Have you ever seen what rebar looks like? It's, it's twisted. Have you ever tried to twist steel? Let alone bend it. Do you understand what that steel had to go through to be turned into something that is going to support the foundation of a house that's going to sit on top of it so that house doesn't sink into the ground, so that house doesn't get ripped out of the ground every time a bad storm comes through? First, they had to throw that steel into a fire where it became so hot that that steel started to glow. It couldn't be so hot that it would start to melt. No, they still needed to be informed. But they threw it into a place where it would be so hot that it would begin to glow red. And then after it began to glow red, then they would grab that thing and they would shove it into cold water. Now, if you've ever felt the difference of getting out of a hot tub and jumping into a pool, you understand it feels like a shock to your system. It's fun as a child. It's terrible as an adult. I don't know why anybody would. I don't understand why I like to do that as a child. I would get in hot, hot, hot tub water, and then I'd go jump into a freezing cold pool, and it would feel as though my body would go into shock. What a weird way to get a jolt to my system. But they throw it into fire, and then they throw it into water. You ever feel like God is just jolting you around? And then what do they do? Are we done? Is it tempered? No. Then they go and get a hammer and tongs, and they start to beat the steel. You ever seen a blacksmith? Not in the movies. Not where it looks like Chris or Liam's Hemsworth, and they got 32,000 abs coming down their body. And they're just wearing an apron, and they come in. Their beard is perfect. There's no soot on their face. I don't know how that works. I mean a real blacksmith. The body right here isn't much, but you look at his arms up to his shoulders, you look down his back, he might not have abs, but once he lays hold of that steel, it is like a vice grip. You almost wonder, I think this man can twist my arms so that bones break is how powerful he is. I mean, a blacksmith is powerful, and God basically says, I am going to treat your faith like steel that needs to be tempered. I'm going to throw you into things that are so hot, you feel as though it's going to melt you, but I won't let it get there. Once I've got you soft, and I'm going to throw you into something that feels as though it has shocked your system so that now I can begin to catalyze you. After I'm done that, I'm going to take a hammer and tongs, and I'm going to begin to beat you so I can form you into what I need you to be. And then I'll go ahead and grab vices, and I'll twist it so that I can form it into what I need you to be. The reason your life feels like chaos sometimes is not because you've made a bad decision, not because God is mad at you, not because Satan's out to get you, but because God said, I've got something powerful that I want to crack you into that I can't do until I first put you in some of the most painful heat, shock your system so bad, and then take a hammer and tongs to your life to begin to beat, contort, and form you. You want to know why the Romans danced around the world? As the most powerful empire for the longest time, part of it had to do with their internal fortitude. But a big part of it had to do with their weaponry. They had some of the most powerful metals when it came to battle. They didn't go running out with cheap weapons. When they went out and their swords clashed, the Roman swords would hold strong and shatter the other weapons. When their were having weapons shot at them, their shields would hold strong because their shields, their swords, everything that they wore had been tempered and formed to such perfection, had gone through such heat and intensity and been brought to a place of fullness.
I wish God didn't have to do that to me. I really, really do. It hurts. See, James understands, count it pure joy when you go through diverse trials. Because it's going to get hot sometimes. And then there's going to be times where it gets really cold for no reason. And then there's going to be times you feel like you're being crushed. And then there's going to be times you feel like you're being twisted. And then there's going to be times you feel like you're out of control. And all the while, he says, count it joy. And if I do not come to a place where I understand that joy is God loves me, and so whatever I'm going through, I will survive, at some point I'm going to snap in the process. God's not trying to be mean. He's trying to strengthen faith. Preacher, why has he got to strengthen faith? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. I don't know why that's what God demands as the method by which we can please him, by the way we can interact with him. But the reality is, is that if I don't have faith, I cannot interact with God. If I do not have my faith strengthened, then I cannot interact with God more. And God does not want to wait until eternity to give me more of him. God does not want to wait until whenever the trumpet sounds and Jesus splits the eastern sky and comes back. He doesn't want to wait that long to give me as much of him as he can right now. He He's not interested in waiting that long to let me experience as much joy, as much peace, as much of an interaction and intimacy with him until eternity. That's where I'll get the bulk of it, but he's more interested in giving me as much of an intimate relationship with him now. So when he puts me through all of this chaos, when he puts me through all this tribulation, it's not out of bitterness. It's because he says, I want to know my son more. I want to know my daughter more. I want them to understand how much I love them. I want to understand how much they love me. I want them to understand how much I think about them. I want them to understand how I'm always thinking about them. But I can't do that until I make them into something that can handle my glory. Joy. The testing of your faith. Now, if you skip down a bit, all of a sudden, I had to think for a little bit. I looked down. I forgot the verse for a second. All of a sudden, you see this part, and it talks about temptation. Now, they're very similar words, trials, temptations. In fact, we even have songs that say, when I go through trials and temptations, and we have a tendency to mix the two. All right, if it's a trial, it's a temptation. And we get to this part. Now, James just said, when you go through all these trials, count it joy. And then all of a sudden, we've got temptations. God, do I count this joy? No. Because he points this out. When you're going through temptation, do not say God is tempting me, for God himself cannot be tempted. Well, preacher, what's the difference between a trial and a temptation? A trial is designed to make you more like God. A temptation is to draw you away from God. Preacher, how do I know which one I'm going through? The reality is you're probably going through both. Because when God gets ready to turn you into more and more of who he knows you are and who he wants you to be, when God gets ready to catalyze you into something that you didn't even know was possible in your life, when God decides that he wants to give you more of himself than you realized you were able to handle, Satan is always right there alongside to run into whatever scenario that God is using for his glory so that Satan can mess it up and use it for his dismay. 
See, when you're going through trial and all of a sudden you start thinking to yourself, I don't want to tithe. I don't have the money to even make it my bills. I guess I just won't tithe this month. God will understand. Not tithing is to look at God and say, God, I don't trust you with my finances. I don't believe that you can do more with the 90% than I could do with 100%. So rather than tithe, God, I'm going to make sure my bills are paid first. And if anything's left over, then I'll give you that. The temptation is to not tithe because there's a legitimate need. I've got to pay my bills. The trial is to tithe and say, God, you said that if I tithe, that you would rebuke the devourer. You said that if I tithe, you would make sure that I would have enough food on the table. God, you said that if I tithe, I would have a roof over my head and clothes on my body. It might not be Gucci or Armani, but it'll be nice clothes that you can go to a job in and get a job interview and get hired. It'll be nice enough that you can keep on working. God says, if you'll trust me, to take care of you when you've got less. I'll show you how I'll make it go farther. Then the temptation, take care of what... Now listen, you got to put gas in the car to get to work so that you can make money, so that you can feed your family, so that you can keep going to church, right? It doesn't make sense to give God 10% when I'm barely affording gas or light or electricity or whatever it is in my head. It doesn't make sense to give God the 10% when 100% isn't even enough to cover what I need. And yet God says, here's the trial. Let me show you how I'm your provider. Let me show you how I'm your supplier. Let me show you how I can make things grow when I've got less in your bank account but more of your faith. And then the temptation, Satan comes alongside and gives reasonable, rational. I wish God, I wish God wouldn't let Satan step into the mix. I really wish he wouldn't. I wish God would just say, listen, I'm doing a trial. They don't need you to mess things up. They've got it hard enough. They're already messed up. Have you watched them? They don't make it through their life very well on their own anyways, even though they're a Christian. They don't need the extra help from you, Satan. Don't worry about it. We're not going to do a temptation this time. We're just going to do the trial. But for some reason, just like Job, Satan or whatever demon is assigned to you and I show up in heaven and look at God and say, God, if you let me do this, I bet they'll curse you. If you let me do this, I bet they'll lose faith. If you let me do this, I bet they'll stop serving you. If you let me do this to them, I bet they'll stop worshiping you. And God looks at that devil or that demon and says, have at it. Thanks, God. You feel like God's not really interested in you succeeding? That's why James is so clear. Don't say God is tempting you. Because God can't be tempted. Listen, every single time that something shows up in heaven before the throne of God and asks permission to come and tempt you, not to try you, to tempt you. God is the only one that tries you. Satan tempts. Every time someone goes up into heaven to ask permission to tempt you, know that they could not do that to you without the permission of God to come and do that in the first place. Which means... That if God gave permission for it to happen, then God's still in the one in control. Which means if God is still in control, he still loves you. Which means if he still loves you, even if there's a temptation there, and God hadn't planned on putting you through a trial, and a temptation shows up out of left field that you weren't expecting, God is still able to bring you through it. I'd rather that he didn't let Satan come and tempt me. I'd have a much easier life if all I had to deal with the trials of God. It'd still be tough, but it'd be much better than having to deal with the trials and the temptations. But God says he is in so much control, in 
so much power, in so much authority, that, and his love is so grand and vast that it doesn't matter if God is the one doing it to you or Satan is the one doing it to you. God says you can still crawl up in my arms, and even though it's painful, even though me holding you doesn't change the scenarios in your life, even though me holding you close to my chest so that you can hear my heartbeat does not change the temptation you're going through right now, even though I'm holding you so close that you can feel the breath off my mouth as it comes through your hair because you're just laying against me like a little child. Even though it doesn't change anything, God says I can sustain you through this so that when you come out on the other side, you will see the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his glory, and you will receive more of his love planted into you. Now here's the thing. If I've got an eight-ounce cup, how much liquid can that cup hold? Eight ounces. If I've got a 10-ounce, how much can that hold? 10 ounces. If I've got a gallon bucket, how much? Here's the thing about God. You ever seen those pottery makers? They've got that little lump of clay, and they start making a mug or a pot or whatever, and it's just this tiny little lump. I love watching. I get lost in YouTube for hours watching them because they do the time lapse. It's not like they're actually taking the actual amount of time. If they took the time lapse away, I'd feel like I was watching paint dry. But they do the time lapse, so it looks so much faster, so I get to see. I wish God would do that with me sometimes, by the way. Just let me see the time lapse of what you're trying to do, God. Don't make me go through all of the slow parts. But you've got this potter with these forearms that look like they could shape iron, they start digging their fist into that pot, that little piece of clay. And it's very small. It doesn't look like you can hold much. And as they keep on digging, all of a sudden, it makes a small little bowl. I'm like, I didn't know it could be that big. I thought it was just a little lump of clay. I didn't think it could make something that, that was that big that can hold that much water. And then as they look at it, they start thinking, I think I can make it bigger. And so all of a sudden, they take their hand and they shove it deep down inside of that clay. And all of a sudden, as they're doing it, the clay starts to grow. And I'm looking at it and thinking to myself, what sorcery is this? There's not enough clay to do that. How in the world are you making it big? And I'm starting to look at it, and it's getting so big. I'm like, there's no way you can make it bigger. And then they stick their arm back in, and they start grading up the side again and making it bigger. I was like, how in the world? Well, they just did all of it so that it was tall. Now it's just a very tall cylinder. And then they go back into it, and they start pushing out on the walls. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way it can get bigger. How is it that they keep on seeming to add to this thing so that it gets larger when it started out so small with all this pressure? And then you know what happens? They see how big it is, and they decide, I think I can do better. So they take this piece of wire, and they slice it, and it falls to the ground. I'm like, why did you do that? It looks so good. Don't you feel like God does that to you sometimes? I thought I looked good, God. Why'd you break the whole thing? Then they go and get more clay, and they throw it into the mix again. And so now what they're making is something even bigger and bigger. And then they decide that's not quite what I want to have, so they decide I want to make a giant vase that can hold even more. So they go and get more clay, and they slam it down in there, and they begin to mix it and press it and fold it and pull it and score it and shape it until all of a sudden what was just this little tiny piece, this ball of clay, has become such a grand vase that can, do you understand that God sometimes is forming you? And adding you so that you can hold more and more and more and more of him. I'm so excited because when eternity comes, I'm going to have a perfect body. That's not going to feel pain as God continues to expand me so that I can hold more and more and more and more of him. 
but he loves me too much to make me wait until everything's perfect. He says, even though it's a mess right now, I'll form you. He looks at me and says, I don't just want to leave you with eight ounces of my glory. I'd like to give you 15 ounces. I don't want to leave you with 15. I'd love to give you 128 ounces. That's about a gallon. I don't want to leave you with 128 ounces. So what I'm going to have to do, you've held this 128 ounces of my glory and my love and my affection for you, but I've got so much more. So I'm just going to take this whole thing and I'm going to slice it and make the whole thing fall apart. And we're sitting here thinking to ourselves, God, why did this happen? Are you mad at me? My whole life is falling apart. And he says, no, I just need to make you bigger so that you can hold more of me. And then Satan comes in and comes with the temptation and says, why don't you just go ahead and stop? God is obviously being mean. He doesn't like you anymore. He's ruined your whole life. He is the architect of the disaster that has happened. And he walks in and says, why don't you curse God? And the question always comes, has the faith been tempered enough so that as God is expanding how much of him I can hold, then I'll survive through. You want to know what verse I hate more than any other verse in the Bible? Abraham, now I know. You know how mad I would have been had I been... I mean, maybe Abraham didn't know that God knows everything. Maybe Abraham didn't have that kind of theology yet. He understood that God could do whatever he wanted. But maybe he didn't know that God sees all things from front to back, from back to front, as though it has happened at that instant. And so there is nothing under the sun or in all the universe that can be hidden from. Maybe Abraham didn't understand that. But I cognitively understand that God knows everything. And if God had shown up to me and said, JJ, now I know, I would have, I don't know what I would have done because I like to talk big, but if God showed up, I think I'd be more like Job where he says, surely I spoke of things too grand for me and I'd like to hide myself now, God. Please excuse me for being an idiot. But my, my gut reaction, JJ, now I know. Pardon? Now you know? What do you mean now you know God? I thought you know everything. I thought you see all things. What do you mean now you know God? Abraham, I knew you'd walk up the hill. I knew you'd lay your son down to sacrifice him. I knew you'd raise the hand. I knew you'd plunge the knife. I knew that if I didn't stop you, you'd follow through. Then God, why in the world are you saying now you know? Because even though God stands outside of time in the fullness of eternity, we are stuck in time. Even in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve could not escape time. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. It's not that there was no time, it's just that nobody cared because they weren't going to die and they weren't going to get sick. There was no bills to pay tomorrow. Everything was perfect, but they were still bound to time, which is why God would always come down in the cool of the day and spend time with them. God may be unbound from time, but you and I are bound to time. And when he says, now I know, what he's saying is, I got to walk through it with you. 
I got to be the reason that you even made it through this. I got to stand side by side as your feet took you up this mountain. I got to stand right next to you as you laid your son on the altar. JJ, I got to stand next to you as you had to debate whether or not to pay your bills or to pay your tithe. JJ, I got to stand next to you as you prayed about what you're going to do with your family, whether or not to stay in Cincinnati or whether or not to go to Florida and gamble on becoming a pastor of a church. JJ, I got to stand next to you as you made decisions as an 18-year-old whether or not you were going to honor me and become a preacher or you were going to dishonor me and go into the military camp. JJ, I got to, I already knew those things, but now I know because I got to walk it with you. Make no mistake, when God is busy tempering you, he's not left you alone. He's walking right next to you. Preacher, am I going through a trial or a temptation? You're probably going through both. Because if it's a trial from God, Satan is very faithful to try and make it a temptation. If it starts out as a temptation from Satan, God is very faithful to walk in and turn it into a trial so that you can become more like him. Make no mistake, Satan may be faithful in tempting you, but God is more faithful when it comes to being there to make every single thing work together for your good. And you know what good is? Being able to hold more of God. Now, the worst thing about this entire sermon is that it means sometimes at the end of it, there is a deep loss. Being faithful to God, having joy in the midst of trials, even standing firm and not giving in to temptation does not always mean that it will turn out in a way that excites me. Sometimes there will be deep pain and deep loss. And I do not say that to discourage you. I do not say that to scold you. I do not say that to shame you. I say that because eternity is so much more vast. Because your life and your soul and your spirit is so much more precious. That God is willing to let you lose things. That are legitimately precious to you so that he can replace it and fill it with something that is far more grand. Now listen to me. This is not something that I would preach at a funeral. At the moment of loss, even in the preciousness of the loss of someone close, or the loss of a job, loss of a friend, even if you failed in the temptation and gave in to a sin, that's not the moment to say to someone that God has taken something so that he can replace it with something more precious. That's the time for blessed are those who mourn. That's the time where it's okay to be next to people and not talk about the grand design that God has for your life and simply say, I don't know how to help you, but I'm here with you in the pain. I'm here with you in the grief. I'm here with you in the sorrow. And make no mistake, while God is still working on you, what he's going to bring up to you in the middle of the pain and the sorrow and the grief is not, listen, don't worry about it. I've got something more grand. I'm going to make this. That's not what he's saying to you. What he's saying to you in the midst of loss is I am with you. He still plans on getting you to the more filling. But please don't miss this. Just because the trial is in such pain and sorrow, and you can weep bitterly while having joy at the same time, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. 
while those things are happening, do not beat yourself up thinking to yourself, God, why can't I get my eyes on what you're using this for? Why can't I get my heart set on what you're going to do in the future? You want to know why you can't look that far in the future and remove yourself from the pain and the circumstances of the now to try and excite yourself and get yourself so jazzed up about the future that it overshadows now? I'll give you the very simple reason why. Because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, you can't. I've heard so many sermons. The pain of now is not worth the glory of the future. And that's true. However, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough problems. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Instead, focus on today. I've heard too many sermons where we've been guilted and shamed into trying to try and ignore the pain of the present in favor of the majesty and glory of what Christ is doing to us and for us in the future. But even Jesus himself says, yes, there is greatness coming in the future. But since it's not here yet, I only need you to worry about now. And if now is pain, then all I need you to worry about is how to have joy in pain. What's joy? Jesus, I know you still love me and you'll never leave me despite the pain and the trial I'm in. So if Jesus himself is saying, don't worry about what I'm going to do for you and in you, that's so grand in the future. Instead, just be here in the pain with me right now and focus on how I am forming joy in you. Who am I to think that I ought to run ahead and get over something? Who am I to look at people when they've gone through a deep loss and tell them, it's been long enough, get over it. You've gone through, listen, just stop dealing. Don't you love God enough? Don't you have enough faith that this isn't that big a deal? I would love to see anybody say that at a funeral. I would love to see anybody say that to someone after they've lost their job. I would love to see anyone say that when someone has been wrongfully put in prison. We need to stop shaming people as though the future is so grand and fantastic that it overshadows the now. When Jesus himself said, now, count it pure joy when you go through trials, for the testing of your faith will produce in you everything that is complete and perfect, and when you are tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God himself cannot be tempted. They might both be there. God may be forming you to put more inside of you, but don't forget the first thing that James said now. Just worry about the joy in the trial now.